Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message, it was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear, please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show number 622. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy on this cold and bitter day. The sun is low. It's bright blue sky. But, man, my log burner is pumping out the heat there. It is freezing. I hope, to be honest, I'm sounding like some Nambi Pambi kind of, because I know if you're in the kind of wilds of Alaska or somewhere like that. But it, and it's only probably about six degrees, but oh, it feels cold, man, to the bone, to the bone. I hope everyone, like I say, is fine and dandy. I tell you what's coming in today's show. We have the main fiction, which is Captured Carbon by Jeffrey W. Cole. And end of the month there, Mr. G.J. Campanella slaps down the very first of 2020 of his science news. That's all coming in dear show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So the main fiction, Captured Carmen, like I say, by Jeffrey W. Cole. This first appeared in the Cli-Fi Canadian Tales of Climate Change, Exile 2017. Jeffrey W. Cole's award-winning short fiction has appeared in such publications as Reckoning, Clark's World, Escape Pod, New Worlds and the year's best Canadian speculative fiction writing. His stories have been been translated into Catalan. Actually, that's where we're going for our little May break. Girona. French, Hungarian, Italian, Romanian and Spanish and has been produced as podcast. He is the 2016 winner of, I think it's Primus Icturus, 
for best story translated into Catalan. Jeff has degrees in biology, engineering and an MFA in creative writing. He lives with his wonderful wife, three sons and giant hound outside Toronto, Canada. And there's a website there if you come over to our site and go and say Jeff. Now this story as well is narrated by the author Jeffrey. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Captured Carbon by Jeffrey W. Cole Read by the author The shape on the ice floe looked like a woman, but J.J. Dillon knew that was impossible. He floated half a kilometre off the coast of Taktoyaktak, and as far as he knew, he was the only person dumb enough to be stuck out here. But he lifted his diving mask for a better look anyway. Maybe it was a walrus or a seal or oil in the shape of a woman. J.J. hyperventilated to prep for the dive. Oil. That made the most sense. The news sites said the slick was still 20 kilometers from Tuck, but the news sites were the lying mouths of the oil companies. And if the woman-looking shape really was oil, that meant the coral was in trouble. J.J. used the boy line to pull himself down the seven meters to where the reef grew above the bubbler pipe. Thousands of tiny tentacles extruded from the calcified carcasses of their ancestors and greeted J.J. with their usual enthusiasm. Hey, fellas, he thought at them. What a lousy day to say goodbye, huh? He used handholds the coral had grown for him to move across the reef to its easternmost edge, and he took water samples as he went. His boss wanted to make sure the phage they had injected into the bubbler feed line was dispersing all the way across the reef. The phage would splice in some genes that should make the coral a little more resilient if and when the slick made it to tuck. Gotta make sure you all get a taste, he thought. Don't want the crude making you sick. The coral usually loved the wild currents he stirred up with his gesticulations. But today they were straining to taste the current coming from the north. They were worried for their little ones. His lungs were starting to burn. He moved back along the reef and ducked into a grotto the coral had grown at his suggestion. Three little pods grew at the center of the grotto, each pod filled with thousands of coral planulae. He couldn't remember whose idea it had been to grow the pod his or the corals, but it had been his idea to sell them. At $50,000 a pod, how could he refuse? That was enough to get him back to balmy Halifax. I'll find a safe home for your babies, he thought as he snipped the base of each pod and placed them in his otter box. You take care of yourselves, all right? I'll miss you. He climbed up the anchor line to the surface. The ice flow had drifted closer, And when J.J. lifted his diving mask, there was no longer any ambiguity. The woman-shaped smudge on the ice wasn't a walrus, or a seal, or an oil slick. He swore. Tony was supposed to meet him after shift, and she promised she'd have the cash for the planulae in hand. One hundred thousand NAU dollars. He could be on a plane tomorrow. The woman lay on her side as if she'd fallen asleep on the ice. Five degrees below freezing, and she was out here wearing nothing but overalls. J.J. swore again and started to swim. When he pulled himself up onto the ice, her face was the same deep blue as the ocean below. It took him a second to realize he'd seen a much less blue version of that face plastered all across the news sites reporting on the spill. You're supposed to be dead. He pushed his fingertips into the frozen skin of her wrist, like he'd seen cops do in the movies. Oh, maybe you ain't is committed to preventing any oil from reaching the coastline. Arctic energy crews are seeding the affected areas with petronome, 
an organism custom designed by Atrophor to deal with Arctic oil spills. Petronome is a smart bug that will seek out to metabolize any crude oil in its environment. Petronome will... The advertisement had been running on Elvis's music feed all morning, and he was thankful when his phone interrupted it with an incoming alert. Message from JJ. Need pick up now. OMG. Elvis Jacobson turned his boat around and opened up the throttle. Last time JJ had sent a text like that, it was because he'd thought the coral were depressed. Turned out one of the calcium and CO2 bubblers had been blocked, so he hadn't been totally off the mark. This time, though, Elvis feared the kid had found something worse. Smoke darkened the northern sky where the fireboats were still trying to put out the flames on the Beaufort Endeavour. I did the best I could, Anak, Elvis thought as he steered his boat toward the other end of the reef, where he'd left J.J. to collect samples. He had a good view of the entire nine-kilometer expanse of his leasehold as he weaved his way through patches of sea ice. Though there was nothing but neon-orange painted growlers to mark the reef, he could see the shape of the reef below in his mind. Twenty years now he'd been watching it grow, and all it would take was a few days for the oil to kill his livelihood. Several ships prowled the waters on the northern horizon, cleanup crews no doubt, that were dumping the petronome that Arctic Energy kept blathering about in their advertisements. Elvis worried about that too. From what he'd read, the petronome was an unknown. Neither Arctic Energy nor Atrophor had released anything about the smart bug they were dumping by the ton into the ocean. As far as he was concerned, both the oil and the petronome were a threat to his reef. I'm leaving everything to you. His anox words came back to him as he reached the midpoint of the reef. Do something smart with it, or I'll haunt you until the day you die. He'd thought about going south, like his parents had done, but Anak had raised him here. Going south didn't seem right. His cousin Randy had purchased a leasehold near Katavik and loved to brag about all the money he got from growing carbon-fixing coral, so Elvis had done the same. The first few years had been good. They were always growing new methane collection systems out in the permasludge back then, and the generating stations where they burned the methane for power were paying good money to capture their waste carbon. But Clomad's licensing fees for their custom coral kept going up, faster than Elvis could bid on more carbon capture contracts. Then the winter ice started coming back a few years ago, and he had to buy an upgrade from Clomad to further modify the coral so they could withstand months under the ice. Now, he could barely afford to pay the kid. He hated to admit it, but a small part of him hoped the oil would ravage his reef. The lawsuit would take years, sure, but they'd give him a big payout and he could retire. Go south. Anak would understand, wouldn't she? He'd stayed long enough. He could see J.J. on a big slab of pack ice now. The kid was kneeling over the prone shape of a woman lying on the ice. That was odd. But it meant the kid wasn't worried about oil. His reef was safe, just in time for another licensing payment. With a mixture of relief and disappointment, he pulled up alongside the ice. She alive? he shouted. He tossed the kid a tow line. Think so, J.J. said. The kid pulled the boat and the ice flow together. The woman's skin was blue, her hair looked like seaweed, and her coveralls were frosted with ice. If she was alive, it was a miracle. Tie the line under her arms, Elvis said, and we'll haul her into the boat. J.J. tied her off. He was good with knots, and with the coral. Really, the kid was good with anything that didn't involve talking to other people. Elvis liked that about him. They worked in silence as they tugged and pushed the woman to get her into the boat. Elvis found an irregular pulse at her neck. She's breathing, too. 
J.J. said as he climbed over the gunwale. We gotta get her out of those clothes, Elvis said. The kid swallowed hard, the brown skin at his cheeks darkening. Don't be modest, kid. She'll die if we don't warm her up. They dragged her into the boat's small cabin. He dug out an old survival suit, blankets, and some chemical heating pads. Then the two of them peeled the woman out of her coveralls. It was like peeling the clothes off a corpse. The coveralls were burned and torn along her left side, as were the long underwear she wore beneath the coveralls. When they stripped her out of the long underwear, Elvis found the kid staring at her, his eyes wide. Never seen a pair of tits before? J.J. shook his head and pointed to the skin on the left side of her body. It healed. While the rest of her was shades of blue, the skin along her left arm and most of her left side was pinkish and raised, like road rash that had three weeks to heal. J.J. pushed back the damp hair from the left side of her face, and there was more of the weird healing skin there, too. Three days, the kid said. Three days what? Elvis said as he pulled the survival suit over her legs. She's been in the water for three days, the kid said. He slid the woman's arms into the suit. Don't you recognize her? Elvis looked at the woman's face as he zipped her up. And sure, she looked kind of familiar, but he couldn't place her. The engineer that ran the Beaufort Endeavor, the kid said. J.J. packed the heating pads under her armpits. Marion Lombardo, that's her name. Didn't the news say she died in the explosion? Well, if she did, she got better. Alvis wasn't sure if the kid was joking. He never could tell with anyone under 25. It was like they were a different species. They propped Marion's head up with a life jacket. She still looked dead, despite the slight flare of her nostrils and the bumpy skin along the left side of her face. We better call the Coast Guard, Elvis said. He reached for the radio. The woman moved faster. Her fingers were ice claws on his wrist, and her eyes were clouded, like Anox in the last few years before the cancer took her. Marion spoke with the voice of a drowned man. No. Thirsty. So damn thirsty. Marion downed the bottle of water the older of the two men offered her, but it did nothing to slake her thirst. The water sat heavy in her gut, and after a moment she spat it all up. That worried the men. The older one looked ready to go for the radio again. No Coast Guard, she said. No cops. You're sick, he said. We need to call someone. She shook her head. I'm all right. I just need to warm up, please. The two men looked at each other. Confusion plain on their faces. She could understand that. She was confused about so many things, but she knew that the authorities could not get involved. If they did, they would try to stop her. Give me a minute, okay? She said as she leaned back against the life jackets. The older of the two led the younger man back out onto the deck. She waited until the two men were deep in conversation before she started to move. The boat smelled so good. There had to be something she could drink in here. As she looked for anything to quench her thirst, she disconnected the radio the older man had been trying to use to contact the Coast Guard. And when she was sure he wasn't watching, she grabbed the phone in the glove box and the backup battery for the radio and dropped them both out a porthole. The younger one probably had a phone on him. She'd have to get rid of that as well. She'd seen him tapping on something when he'd found her on the ice. The ice... Marion looked down at her hands, and when she did, memory overwhelmed her. She tumbled into the seat behind the steering wheel. The sea ice had been thicker than anyone expected. 
All those years capturing carbon and reducing emissions had finally brought ice back to the Beaufort Sea, and the ice had laid siege to her rig. Alarms rang in her memory, high pressure in the suction line, temperature alarms across the rig, and anything they did only seemed to make it worse. The sound was so awful. She was supposed to be at her daughter's birthday party back in Kitchener, but she'd put off going home to deal with the ice. She'd always hated the sound of children's parties, but the alarms were worse. Then the explosion. She was flying through the air. No, not flying. I'm falling, and I'm on fire. Flames consumed her left arm from fingertips to elbow. Minnie's birthday party. Blow me out, Minnie. Blow me out. Then she'd awoken on the ice with this terrible thirst. The fall should have killed her, let alone the burns or the ice-cold sea. Yet here she was. She remembered the years of crystalline ambition and hard work that had led to the engineer's position on the Beaufort Endeavour, but those memories were like watching a film of someone else's life. She had other memories, too, disjointed sensations, the taste of blue, the urge to split, the relief of death, but that, too, belonged to someone else. The sound of alarms, the hot shame of missing her daughter's birthday, even questions surrounding what should have been her death. All of it paled compared to her thirst. Her nose found it for her. The bottle sat in a milk crate with several other plastic containers. She unscrewed the lid and drank. The taste made her gag, but she forced herself to keep drinking. As she swallowed the final drops, for a brief second her thirst was satiated. With a new clarity of mind, she looked back over the men on deck. The older of the two was still gesturing at her, then at the line of orange boys out on the water, while the younger one seemed preoccupied with a yellow otter box that hung from the belt of his dry suit. He kept touching it, like he had to reassure himself it was still there. Killing them wouldn't be hard. The older, the one who remembered Minnie, recoiled in horror at the thought. You wouldn't dare. The new her ignored the revulsion. She needed their boat, to get to the next rig. The older man wouldn't let her take it without a fight. One quick shove and the ocean would take care of him. The younger man didn't care about the boat, but she couldn't get a good read on him. This kind of analysis was new to her. Before the explosion, she'd bent her mind to the task of how to most efficiently pump oil from its hiding places deep in the earth. The new her had to master a different calculus, and the young man was an unknown variable best to bludgeon him to death with the gaff hook to take him out of the equation. Her thirst came back with a vengeance. She found another bottle. This one had a different taste, but provided the same sense of satiation. She was chugging it when the older man came back into the cabin. Jesus Christ, he said. You're drinking gasoline. J.J. wished the coral could talk to him up here. They would know what to do. Gasoline ran out the corners of Marion Lombardo's mouth. She lowered the jerry can, a look of total amazement on her face that J.J. didn't buy for one second. He felt like he could almost understand the woman, like he'd felt with the coral before he finally started to understand their gestures. But she still eluded him. Gasoline, she said. She wiped her mouth and looked at the container as if for the first time. Oh, my God. She fainted at the floor. Elvis ran over to her. Coast Guard, he said to J.J. Now! J.J. tried the radio, but the power line was cut, and the backup batteries were missing. Elvis's phone wasn't in the glove box, either. That meant using his phone. Shit. 
He didn't have a voice plan, too expensive, and a call to the Coast Guard would put him back several dollars. What's the holdup? Elvis said. Your radio is busted, JJ said, and I can't find your phone. The woman moaned and tried to sit. Lady, Elvis said, I think we need to make you throw up. He turned back to JJ. I used the phone two minutes ago when you messaged me. It's in the glove box. J.J. looked at the woman. Marion stared up at him with her cloudy eyes. That's how you know a person, J.J.'s father had said when the deputies came to deport his parents. The eyes let you look deep into a person, not to their soul. There's no such damn thing, but past all the bullshit we wear to hide our true selves. A thin film sat between Marion's true self and the outside world, but those eyes were staring at the phone and its dry bag strapped to J.J.'s wrist. She chucked your phone. J.J. said. He held up the cut power cable on the radio. And she cut the radio. Elvis blinked in confusion. J.J. liked his boss. Elvis was kind and generous as he could afford to be, but the man could be slow at times. Too slow. The woman lunged for the gaff hook hanging on the wall. J.J. grabbed his boss and hauled the big man away from the woman as she spun around, the gaff held like a baseball bat. What the hell? Elvis managed as J.J. threw him to the deck. The woman lunged at them. J.J. slammed the cabin door shut and locked it from the outside. She screamed at them from within, then hammered the door with the butt end of the gaff. What's wrong with her? Elvis said. He got to one knee as the woman smashed out one of the tiny windows in the door. She tried to crawl through the too small opening. Call the cops, J.J. Now. J.J. looked down at the phone strapped to his wrist. I'll pay for the call, Elvis screamed. J.J. took the phone out of its case and flicked it on. Tony's message waited for him. Got the goods? Hold on, Marion said. She'd cut her forearm trying to get through the window, and viscous pink liquid seeped from the wound. Please, I'm not myself. She looked ready to weep. Something happened to me after the rig exploded. I don't want to hurt anyone. Elvis didn't look convinced. That may be the case, but we're still going to call the cops. He looked over at J.J. and gave him the nod. J.J. brought up his dial pad. What's in the otter box? Marion said. J.J. felt his mouth go dry. The coral would know, he was certain. They would feel their planulae were in danger. She's crazy. He's been protecting that thing ever since he found me, Marion said. Why is it so important? Elvis looked skeptical. What's she talking about, J.J.? J.J. wanted to retract into the calcified carcass of an ancestor. Elvis wasn't supposed to know about the planulae pods. Nothing, Elvis. She's crazy. Elvis, Marion said. If there's nothing in the box, why won't he show it to you? The big man shook his head. I don't know what the hell is going on here, but I think I ought to know what is in that box. J.J. fought back tears. He put his hand to his mouth to try to stop himself from talking, but it was no use. The coral below must be shuddering in disappointment. The coral wanted me to do it, he said in a whisper. They wanted their babies to be free. Oh, Christ, no, Elvis said. You're stealing from Clomad? Coral want to colonize, he said. He edged closer to the side of the boat. He wouldn't be able to get the life raft out before Elvis could stop him. But he could swim. It wasn't that far to land. How could I deny them their most basic urge? Fuck that, Elvis said. You're not stealing them out of the goodness of your heart. How much are you getting? 
His buttocks bumped against the edge of the boat. Thirty minutes of swimming, forty max. There was no way Elvis would leave his boat in the hands of this crazy woman. He could swim back to shore, get Tony the planulae, and be on a plane back to Halifax tomorrow morning. But Elvis had been good to him all these years. J.J. could make him understand, if only he could explain it right. Fifty thousand per pod, he said, but I'm only going to sell two. The third I'm going to raise back home. Know what Clomad will do if they catch you? Elvis was moving closer, like he knew what J.J. was planning. Selling their proprietary organisms will land you in one of their private prisons. Jesus, J.J., you've been living under my roof for three years. You know better than this. The water below the boat was dark. He didn't have his hood up. The first dunk into the Arctic Ocean would be awful. Give me the box, Elvis said. The big man put out his hand. I'll get rid of them. Pretend this never happened. J.J. cradled the otter box. I've got a buyer. I don't know what she'll do if I don't have the product. Elvis went for the otter box. J.J. tried to fight him off. But Elvis was twice his size. All muscle and instinct honed over a lifetime on the premise ledge. Give it to me, boy. Now! He tore the box off J.J.'s belt. The boat pitched beneath them. J.J. was already off balance, and his feet slid out from under him. The grey-blue sky inverted, and he fell toward the Arctic waters. Elvis caught the kid by the ankle as he was tumbling over the gunwale. The kid's head dunked in the water, and the drag nearly pulled them both in. But Elvis wedged his knees under the rail and hauled with all his strength. Ungrateful little puke! Elvis shouted as he tossed the kid onto the deck. J.J. lay sputtering, seawater pouring out of his nose. Elvis would deal with the kid later. First he had to deal with the woman sitting in his seat, piloting his boat. She'd tried to toss them both in the ocean with that little maneuver. The anger that took him then had been buried for decades. He was 13 again, and his parents were explaining how they were going to move south to make some money that they promised they would send home, but never did. A knock will take care of you now. His blood was liquid fire, his fists granite. Anok's inheritance had bottomed the boat. He'd be damned if this woman would take it away from him. He flicked open the latch and shoved the cabin door, but it didn't budge. She'd wedged the gaff into the jam. Elvis reached through the shattered window to tug the gaff free, but she moved faster. She cut at him with his filleting knife. He felt a sting at his right wrist, and the knife flicked away, a smear of crimson along its honed edge. Stick your hand in here again and I'll chop it off, Marion said. She went back to the wheel. You're going to pay for this, lady, Elvis said, but his voice sounded hollow. The old anger was already seeping out of him. She kept jerking the boat from side to side to keep them off balance. That had to be what was making him lightheaded. Oh, no, J.J. yelled. No, no, no. The kid was scrambling around the deck, looking for his otter box, no doubt. It went overboard when you did, Elvis said. He sat on the deck to try to get his sea legs back. Keep pissing me off, and I might chuck you in after it. J.J. shook his head. Not the box. My phone. I was holding it when I went over. Terror twisted his mouth into a trembling rictus. We're all alone out here. The last of the fury drained out of Elvis. He had lived off that rage for years. It had kept him up at night and woke him up in the morning. But it had hollowed him out. The past twenty years without it had almost been enough to fill him up again. We're not alone, Elvis said. He forced himself to breathe. Three years he'd housed and employed the kid. 
Sure, the kid had made a mistake, but hadn't he made his fair share of dumb moves at that age? We got each other. She's taking us out into the open ocean, J.J. said. Elvis's vision was a little spotty, and cold sweat poured down his neck, but he still knew where they were headed. Tuck crouched on the coastline between the deflated bulk of the pingos that Anok claimed used to guard the bay. They were heading toward the dark smear of smoke from the still-burning Beaufort Endeavor. Elvis's guts roiled. He hadn't been seasick since his first year growing coral. What the hell was wrong with him? You're bleeding pretty bad, J.J. said. The kid was looking at Elvis's arm where the woman had sliced him. It had only been a little cut, he thought. Elvis pressed his fingers to it and was surprised when they came away dripping. Holy shit. J.J. shook his head and pointed into the cabin. There's a first aid kit in there. We just gotta get in. She'll slice you to ribbons, kid, Elvis said. No way you can get in there. Maybe I can get her to come out. Elvis pressed his hand to the wound. He had to stop the bleeding, or he really might pass out. Then it would just be the kid alone with that woman, and the kid didn't stand a chance. He tried to get his belt off to tie off his wrist, but his hands were too slick with blood. The roar of the motor cut out. J.J. stood over the outboard motor with the disconnected fuel line in one hand. Now she's got to talk. The cabin door burst open. Marion walked onto the deck, gaff hook in one hand and a bottle of lubricant oil in the other. Take it easy, J.J. said, his voice trembling. Reconnect that line, she said. She took a long pull of the oil, then gestured at Elvis with a gaff. Or I'll put this hook through his skull. Listen to the lady, J.J., Elvis said. An awful taste filled his mouth, like that medicine Anak had given him when he came down with scarlet fever in the 11th grade. J.J. hesitated beside the motor. He was fiddling with it, but Elvis's vision was swimming too much for him to see what the kid was doing. Put the gaff down, J.J. said, or the motor's going to the bottom of the sea. The clamp on the motor's mounting bracket. The kid had loosened it right off. Not bad, kid, Elvis said. His words were slurring. Blood welled up between the fingers clamped to his wrist, and no matter how tight he squeezed, it wouldn't stop. Not bad. Elvis wanted to say more, but his mouth was too dry. He was losing it. Shit. He was going to leave the kid alone with this cloudy-eyed wacko. I'm sorry, kid, he tried to say. So sorry. The older one's head hit the deck with a wet thump. Marion stepped over him and moved closer to the younger man who trembled beside the disabled motor. I ain't kidding, the younger one said. Take another step and I'll strand us here. Do that and your friend will die. He's already lost too much blood. The younger one's hands shook. Listen, he said, his voice shaking as much as his hands. We gotta talk this out or we're all gonna regret it. Why do you want this boat so bad? Listen said the her who should be dead. You don't need to hurt anyone else. But the thirst was still strong. Talk to him, the dead her implored. Why not, she thought. It would buy her some time. She lowered the gaff. I need to get to the next rig. The next oil rig? Which one? The Beifang Dipinchin, Hercules 22? Beifang, then Hercules. Are you going to blow them up too? Blow them up, Marion said and she started to laugh. 
The sensation was a novel delight. No, I didn't blow up the Beaufort. I was born from its ashes. You wouldn't understand what I planned to do with the Beifang. The younger one held her gaze. His eyes were a dark brown set deep in his thin face, and they didn't blink, like he was looking into her. Understanding changed his expression from fear to wonder. You want to feed. Her thirst was still there, and the smell from the fuel line the young one held in his hands was enough to make her salivate. Not the way you think. His excitement grew. The most basic urge, just like the coral. But you aren't coral. You're something else. I remember being less than I am now, she said. He wanted to come closer to her. She could see it in his expression. Keep talking to him, the old her insisted. He just wants to know you. The petronome, he said. Artificial protests created to metabolize crude oil. They are what healed you, right? They are what changed you. You're a hybrid. The older her was drowning again beneath the ocean of her thirst. But Marion needed her now. Can we trust him? We can try. I'm thirsty, she said. She tossed the gaff hook into the water. Now will you let me slake my thirst? He shook his thin head and gestured past Marion. She'd forgotten about the old one. Why bother thinking about something that was almost a corpse? You can heal him, the young one said. The same way you healed, well, yourself. Her hand had been on fire, and now it was almost whole. The parts of her that were many recalled the metabolic pathways they had hijacked to seal up her wounds. The old one's injuries were trivial by comparison. Healing him will change him. He'll die if you don't, JJ said. We'll take the life raft and you can have the boat. She could still kill him. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Why risk losing the motor? The old her whispered from her tomb. Give him this and no one else need die. No, she thought to herself. Give him this and we will live in the old one too. She sliced open her left arm at the wrist. 
Pink fluid dripped onto the wound, the older one still clutched with his unthinking fingers. While a thin strand of fluid connected the man's wound to her arm, she knew the man's pain. She heard a name, a knock, and she felt an old, ashen fury. When that viscous line of liquid severed, she lost contact with him, but she knew a part of her lived on within him. It will take some time for him to come around, she said. She pointed the knife at the motor's mounting bracket. Will you reattach my motor? The young one went to work, though he never took his eyes off her. The dead her was quiet in her grave. Once she had the motor idling again, she helped him lower the unconscious older one into the self-inflating raft that the young one ejected into the water beside the boat. Then she helped him down into it. He held on to her wrist after he'd stepped into the raft. His eyes were full of wonder. You really are new. She shrugged him off. He's going to be thirsty when he wakes up. She went back into the cabin. In seconds, the life raft was a tiny spot on the water behind her. She emptied a spray can of WD-40 into her mouth, and in the calm after drinking, the roar of the motor and the splash of icy water against the hull seemed incredibly quiet. For a moment, she wished for the mechanical quiet to be replaced by the sounds of a children's birthday party. It wasn't the dead her wishing it. This was the new her, the real her. More than anything, she wanted to hear children laughing. It didn't last long. Soon there was only the thirst. Soon there was only the thirst. Big thank you, Jeff, there. Did the whole ensemble <laughs> in the rating and the writing as well. Jeff, thank you so much. So, next up is our science news, Mr. J.J. Campanella. Coming into this new year, Jim, how are you doing, sir? Greetings and reticulated jubilations, my zarconic listeners, and welcome to this January 2020 Science News Update. I'm your host for this New Year's celebration of ineptitude, Jim Campanella. Happy New Year! Let's start the year outright with two, yes, two idiot scientist stories. The first is an update on that reviled, crazy cloner, Jian Qu He of China. What has happened to this great, pathetic sap since we last discussed his home imprisonment several months ago? Uh, well, nothing good, as you probably may have guessed. So, 13 months after touching off an international firestorm, with his research that led to the birth of three germline-edited babies, Dr. He has been sentenced by Chinese authorities to three years in prison and a fine of three million yuan, which is about $430,000. That, by the way, is a ton of money for any academic researcher, whether they are in the West or in China. China reports that the Nanshan District People's Court of Shenzhen City, Guangdong Province, has convicted he and two colleagues, Sang Ren Li and Qin Jinsu, of illegal medical practice. All three are reported to have pleaded guilty during their trial, which was not conducted publicly, quote, due to the personal privacy of the persons involved, unquote. Sang and Qin were sentenced to jail terms of two years and 18 months, with a two-year reprieve, respectively. 
Sang was fined about $143,000 and Kin about $72,000. And they were both also barred from conducting any future research on assisted reproductive technology, which would seem to preclude any attempts to return to the field of germline editing. The famous DNA pioneer, Dr. J. Craig Vetner, tweeted the following, quote, I applaud the government of China for applying a prison term of three years for the scientist who did reckless human experimentation on genome editing of human embryos, unquote. Public prosecutors alleged that the defendants knowingly violated the country's regulations and ethical principles by conducting gene editing in assisted reproductive medicine when they were not qualified to work as medical doctors. The China News Agency reported, quote, the prosecutors presented substantial evidence to prove he's team fabricated an ethical review certificate and recruited eight volunteer couples with men who tested positive for HIV, intending to produce HIV-immune babies. They implanted genetically engineered embryos into the women's bodies and impregnated two of them who gave birth to three babies. Two of the babies, Lulu and Nana, were twin girls born in October 2018, and both carried mutations at the CCR5 gene that codes for a known HIV receptor. The existence of a third baby, which was due to be born in May 2019, appears to have been confirmed by the sentencing report. The uh, District People's Court declared in its verdict that the acts of he and his colleagues were carried out, quote, in pursuit of personal fame and gain, unquote, and have seriously, quote-unquote, disrupted medical order. There was collateral damage as well. Basically, anybody who worked with he in even a vague way was, well, cursed by that association. The Chinese news agency says that, quote, the health administrative department has included all the persons involved in this case into a black list of human reproductive technology violations and barred them from engaging in human-assisted reproductive technology services for life, unquote. Dr. He just continues to make the lives of those around him better. Some quote-unquote progressives have suggested that we should cut He a break, and that he really didn't do anything wrong. Well, what they're forgetting is, is that it wasn't just a question of morality here or ethics. It went beyond that. He broke the law. Writer Tristan Free of the journal Biotechniques elegantly wraps up this story with a damning conclusion about our good Dr. He. Quote, Dr. He conducted an experiment that had no ethical review board approval, was poorly thought out, could well prove to induce negative effects in the resulting children, and he deceived the participants and included an act of forgery. Worst of all, HIV-free children could have easily been generated without the intervention of genetic engineering. This was never anything more than one man's solo race to seize the mantle of the first man to conduct genetic engineering in humans. Unquote. Okay, so, you know what? He's an idiot, but he's not the only idiot scientist from China, apparently. Not as the second story will tell you. According to the New York Times, 
Sao Song Sen, a graduate student at Beth Israel Medical Center in Boston, was arrested on December 10th as he was attempting to fly from Boston to Beijing with stolen biological specimens in his luggage. He planned to take the vials of cancer cells to the Sun Yat-sen Memorial Hospital in China. Prosecutors stated in court documents that the incident seems to be part of a larger effort to steal material from the lab where Sang worked and bring it to China. Sang's roommate, also a researcher, told FBI agents that two labmates of Sang had already succeeded in getting specimens to China and that Sang was just following in their footsteps. Since they hadn't been caught, he figured he wouldn't be caught as well. Prosecutors stated in court documents, quote, Seng's efforts appear to have been part of a coordinated crime with likely involvement by the Chinese government, unquote. The Times says that Harvard University had sponsored Seng's visa to study in the U.S. The school has since revoked Seng's visa, and Beth Israel, a Harvard Medical School affiliate, has fired him. Over the past year and a half, concerns of U.S.-based scientists working to benefit foreign governments, particularly China's, have escalated. A number of researchers have lost their jobs for not disclosing ties to China, and more investigations are ongoing. The U.S. government has intensified efforts to prevent intellectual property theft, and Congress has introduced a bill to devote more security resources to protecting research. I don't entirely get this, though. What did Sang and his colleague spies think they were getting or doing? I'm wondering whether these so-called tissue samples were more complicated than what they appear on the surface. Because, frankly, who cares if somebody steals some cancer cells? It's not like there are not plenty of cancer cells out there. It had to be something much more valuable. But no one is talking, obviously. Whatever the case may be, in the last year, because of spying, thieving, and industrial espionage, it's become harder and harder for foreign students to get education visas in the U.S. My understanding is that the visa period has been extended, the validity period for each visa has been shortened, and the refusal rate for getting a visa in the first place has increased. Okay. Let's get on to the actual first story of the night. Superwood! Able to stop a speeding bullet with a single bound. Okay, I don't know what that meant. Maybe not. As you all know, some varieties of wood, like oak and maple, are renowned for their strength. Some rare and expensive woods are even denser and harder, like ironwood or ebony. However, Dr. Liang Bing Hu of the University of Maryland and his research group say that they have invented a simple and inexpensive new process that can transform any type of wood into a material stronger than steel, and even stronger than some high-tech titanium alloys. Besides becoming a super light and super strong component of buildings and vehicles, these new substances could even be used, despite my earlier silliness, to make bullet-resistant armor plating. Wood is abundant and pretty low cost, and although it has been used for thousands of years to build everything from furniture to homes and structures, 
Untreated wood is rarely as strong as metals used in construction. Well, now Hugh and his colleagues say that they have come up with a better way to densify. Is that a word, densify? Well, anyway, to densify wood. And they reported this in the journal Nature in December. Their simple two-step process starts with boiling wood in a solution of sodium hydroxide and sodium sulfite, a chemical treatment similar to the first step in creating the wood pulp used to make paper. This partially removes lignin and hemicellulose. Uh, those are polymers that actually help stiffen a plant's cell walls. But it largely leaves the wood's cellulose, another natural polymer, and the primary polymer of cell walls intact. The second step is almost as simple as the first. They compress the treated wood until its cell walls collapse. Then they maintain that compression as it is heated gently. The pressure and the heat encourage the formation of chemical bonds between large numbers of hydrogen ions and neighboring atoms in adjacent nanofibers of cellulose, and that greatly strengthens the material. According to the paper, the results are pretty darn impressive. Hugh says, quote, Our compressed wood is three times more dense than the untreated substance. Its resistance to being ripped apart is increased more than tenfold. It is also 50 times more resistant to compression and almost 20 times more stiff. The densified wood is also substantially harder, more scratch-resistant, and more impact-resistant. It can be molded into almost any shape. Perhaps most importantly, the densified wood is also moisture-resistant. In our lab tests, compressed samples exposed to extreme humidity for more than five days swelled less than 10%. And in subsequent tests, we found that a simple coat of paint eliminated that swelling entirely, unquote. A five-layer plywood-like sandwich of densified wood stopped simulated bullets fired into the material, a result Hugh and his colleagues suggest could lead to low-cost armor. Uh, yeah, like you will convince anybody to wear wooden armor like they were some 16th century low-caste samurai or something. Even better, Hugh says that his super wood does not protect quite as well as a Kevlar sheet of the same thickness, but he points out that it only costs about 5% as much. I guess it's possible that research like Hugh's may someday soon make it possible to live in a house made almost completely from super wood, from floors to rafters, walls to windows. Yes, I did say windows. Apparently, Hugh came up with a process several years ago to make wood transparent, if you could believe that. And imagine in the garage there may be a car whose chassis and bumpers and windshields are composed of densified wood rather than steel and plastic and glass. I don't know. I guess it's possible. Lots of things are possible, but I just, I just don't quite see it. Next story, from super wood to super batteries. Imagine having access to a battery that has the potential to power your phone for five continuous days or enable an electric vehicle to drive more than a thousand kilometers without needing to recharge. Dr. Madolt Shaibani of Monash University and his colleagues 
are on the brink of commercializing the world's most efficient lithium sulfur battery, which could outperform current market leaders by more than four times. The researchers have an approved patent filed for their manufacturing process, and prototype electrical cells have been successfully fabricated by the German R&D partner Fraunhofer Institute for Material and Beam Technology. Some of the world's largest manufacturers of lithium batteries in China and Europe have already expressed interest in upscaling production, with further testing to take place in Australia in early 2020. The study was published in Science Advances on January 4, 2020. This was the first research in lithium sulfur batteries to feature in this prestigious international publication. Shaibani says, quote, Successful fabrication and implementation of lithium sulfur batteries in cars and grids will capture a more significant part of the estimated $213 billion value chain of Australian lithium and will revolutionize the Australian vehicle market and provide all Australians with a cleaner and more reliable energy market. Our research team has received more than $2.5 million in funding from government and international industry partners to trial this battery technology in cars and grids for this year, and we are most excited about it, unquote. What about the rest of us, huh? What about us non-Australians, guy, huh? We want some of this. Come on. Everybody wants a phone that'll last five days without charging. Heck, I'll go for a phone that'll last, last a day without needing a charge. Anyway, using the same materials in standard lithium-ion batteries, Shibani reconfigured the design of sulfur cathodes so that they could accommodate a higher stress load without a drop in the overall capacity or performance of the battery. His group was inspired by unique bridging architecture first recorded in processing detergent powders in the 1970s. Uh, the team engineered a method that created bonds between particles to accommodate stress and deliver a level of stability that hasn't been seen in any battery yet made. Shaibani finishes with, quote, This approach not only favors high-performance metrics and long life cycle, but is also simple and extremely low-cost to manufacture using water-based processes and can lead to significant reductions in environmentally hazardous waste, unquote. Okay, bring them on. I'm ready to try it out. Next story. Coffee good, but coffee better filtered. Okay, here's the gist. Coffee can help reduce the risk of developing type 2 diabetes, but only filtered coffee, not boiled coffee. New research published in the Journal of Internal Medicine from Dr. Richard Lundberg of Colmers University of Technology in Sweden, shows that the choice of preparation method influences the health effect of coffee. Many previous studies have shown a connection between high coffee intake and a reduced risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Now, this study now offers new insight into this connection, using a novel method to help differentiate between the effects of filtered and boiled coffee. Lonberg says, quote, We have identified specific molecules, biomarkers in the blood of those taking part in the study, which indicate the intake of different sorts of coffee. These biomarkers are then used for analysis when calculating type 2 diabetes risk. 
Our results now clearly show that filtered coffee has a positive effect in terms of reducing the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. But boiled coffee does not have this effect, unquote. With the use of these biomarkers, the researchers were able to show that people who drank two to three cups of filtered coffee a day had a 60% lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes than people who drank less than one cup of filtered coffee a day. Consumption of boiled coffee had no effect on the diabetes risk in the study. The paper said that filtered coffee is the most common method of preparation in most places, including the U.S. and Scandinavia. Boiled coffee, in this case, refers to an alternative method of preparation, sometimes used in Sweden and in other countries, in which coarse ground coffee is simply added directly to boiled water and left to brew for a few minutes. All the data used in the research came from a group of Swedish subjects and was collected in the early 1990s. According to Landberg, many people wrongly believe that coffee has only negative effects on health, maybe because previous studies have shown that boiled coffee increases the risk of heart and vascular diseases due to the presence of diterpenes. Langberg says, however, quote, but it has been shown that when you filter coffee, the diterpenes are captured in the filter. As a result, you get the health benefits of the many other molecules present, such as different phenolic substances. In moderate amounts, caffeine also has positive health effects, unquote. Many other types of coffee preparation were not specifically investigated in the study, like instant, espresso, and percolator coffee. These types of coffee were not common among the Swedish study population when the data was collected. But given that espresso coffee and the recently invented K-cup coffee pods are also brewed without filters, Landberg believes the health effects could therefore be similar to boiled coffee, in terms of the risk of type 2 diabetes. Coffee made in a French press is prepared in a similar way to boiled coffee, so it may also not have the positive effects of reducing type 2 diabetes risk. It is unclear whether instant coffee, the most popular type apparently in the UK, would be more similar to filtered or boiled coffee in these respects. Uh, Landberg finishes with, quote, please be aware that no conclusions can be drawn yet regarding these other preparation methods and their effects on coffee. I also stress that the health impacts of coffee do not depend solely on whether it is filtered or not. It also depends on how the coffee beans and the drink in general are managed, unquote. Next story, chewing gum, left in strange places? Oh, my 11-year-old son has the unfortunate habit of sticking his chewed-up gum on whatever surface he happens to be near when he's done with it. Usually it is hidden away so that when you place your hand under a desk or a countertop, you will encounter his lovely, thoughtful gift with your fingers. I will let you just imagine the heated response this obtains from me when I am the lucky recipient. Oh, and he inevitably says he knows nothing about the gum when accused, like every child who's ever lived. At any rate, I know that this has been a habit of kids pretty much ever since gum was invented. It's not like I never came across desks when I was in grade school that seemed to have decades of the stuff hidden underneath. 
Well, the next story puts my son's gum-sequestering abilities to shame. Researchers from the University of Copenhagen have succeeded in extracting a complete human genome from a 5,700-year-old piece of chewing gum made from birch pitch. According to the researchers, they succeeded in extracting a complete ancient human genome from the pitch. This is the first time that an entire ancient human genome has been extracted from anything other than human bones. The new research results were published last month in the scientific journal Nature Communications. Dr. Hans Schroeder of the University of Copenhagen, who led the research, says, quote, It is amazing to have gotten a complete human genome from anything other than bone. What is more, we also retrieved DNA from oral microbes and several important human pathogens, which makes this a very valuable source of ancient DNA, especially for time periods where we have no human remains, unquote. Based on this ancient genome, the researchers could tell that the birch pitch was chewed by a female. She was genetically more closely related to hunter-gatherers from mainland Europe than to those who lived in central Scandinavia at the time. They also found that she probably had dark skin, dark hair, and blue eyes. The birch pitch was found during archaeological excavations at Siltholm, east of Rodbehaven in southern Denmark. The excavations are being carried out by the Museum Loland Falster in connection with the construction of the Fairmont Tunnel. Schroeder says, quote, Siltholm is completely unique. Almost everything is sealed in mud, which means that the preservation of organic remains is absolutely phenomenal. It is the biggest Stone Age site in Denmark, and the archaeological finds suggest that the people who occupied the site were heavily exploiting wild resources well into the Neolithic, which is the period when farming and domesticated animals were first introduced into southern Scandinavia. This is reflected in our DNA results, as we have identified traces of plant and animal DNA in the pitch, specifically hazelnuts and duck, which may have been part of the individual's diet, unquote. Huh, well, it could have been hazelnut duck-flavored gum. I hear that was all the rage 5,700 years ago. Made by Wrigley? No? Eh, I guess not. Anyway. Schroeder finishes with, quote, We managed to extract many different bacterial and viral species that are characteristic of an oral microbiome. This information can help us understand how pathogens have evolved and spread over time and what makes them particularly virulent in a given environment. At the same time, it may help predict how a pathogen will behave in the future and how it might be contained or eradicated, unquote. The last story of the evening has to do with gene therapy. Gene therapy is the idea of replacing genes in humans who are mutant for those genes. There has been a long and storied history of gene therapy over the last 30 years or so. We thought in the last 10 years that we had finally pretty much figured out how to get genes into human cells with as little damage as possible to the host genome. But, uh, well, that no longer necessarily appears to be the case. And I will be honest, I'm not really surprised. So what's the story? 
In order to get DNA into a human cell, one method to transfer it in is to use a virus as a carrying vector. Adeno-associated viruses are most popular for delivering gene therapies to human patient cells. One reason that they're so popular is because researchers believe that the DNA these viruses carry rarely inserts itself into the host genome. Unfortunately, that may all now be nonsense, according to results presented last month, December 9th, at the American Society of Hematology meeting in Orlando, Florida. In six dogs that were treated with adeno-associated virus-based gene therapy for a blood clot disorder, hemophilia B, all of them carried the therapeutic DNA within their genomes, and in some cases the genetic material had inserted near genes known to play a role in cell growth. Currently, hemophilia is typically treated with infusions of blood clotting factor replacement, but this requires lifelong administration to keep the disease under control, and I'm sure it's probably pretty unpleasant to have to keep going back to the doctor to get these treatments. In the last decade, several trials of gene therapies, many of which use the uh, adeno-associated virus vector, have shown promise for providing a one-time treatment that gets to the root of the cause of human hemophilia. Hints that uh, adeno-associated viruses carry DNA might integrate to the host genome first surfaced about 20 years ago when studies began to show that injecting newborn mice with high doses of virus could result in transgene insertion. But the research community dismissed those concerns as relevant only to young animals and thus not a concern when it came to treating adults with gene therapy. The new dog study from Dr. Denise Sabatino of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and colleagues calls that dismissal into question. Each of the six dogs whose livers were investigated by the team after the original gene therapy study ended carried multiple insertions of the therapeutic payload, that is the gene for the factor eight protein that the dogs were missing, or regulatory sequences that were also packed into the gene therapy. In some cases, these insertions occurred near genes known to regulate cell growth. Now, whenever you're talking about genes that control cell growth, you're essentially talking about potential oncogenes, what are called proto-oncogenes. An oncogene is essentially a growth regulatory gene that goes bad and it stops functioning correctly. And what it does is it makes a cell grow out of control. And so if you're taking pieces of DNA and sticking them near those genes that regulate cell growth, you're playing with fire. Anyway, some of those cells had higher rates of division resulting in pockets of cells containing the same insertions. This points to those adeno-associated virus-linked genetic changes as a likely cause of the increased cell growth, though more work is needed to confirm that that actually was the case. Despite the concerning genetic changes, the dogs fared well, their livers were healthy, and they had stable restored levels of clotting factor eight a result perhaps due in part to the integration of the therapeutic DNA. 
Still, some gene therapy researchers are concerned about the possibility of those clusters of cells developing into tumors. For those of you in PETA or dog lovers, well, you probably don't want to know that the project did end in the death of all the dogs in the study. Ironically, this had to be done to determine the health of the dogs at the end and what exactly was going on in their livers and other organs when the study was finished. Besides being disturbing to dog owners, from a scientific standpoint, it is very problematic that the dogs were sacrificed at the end of the study. I mean, here's why. It's easy to say that the dogs were healthy at the end of the study, but they had these weird genetic insertions. And unless you wait a number of years, two, three, four, five years, you have no idea if those insertions will cause the dogs to actually get cancer. Dr. Sabatino can point out these genetic abnormalities all she wants, but our understanding of cancer is still such that we cannot draw any long-term conclusions from those abnormalities unless the dogs had lived longer. Well, that's all for me for now. Don't sacrifice your dogs before they're hatched. Keep filtering that coffee. Yes, that gum under your kitchen sink could immortalize you. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, thank you very much indeed. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it and hope you will support this good show on Patreon. That would be fantastic. Until next week, just like to say a good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.